I hope there's not too much reflection off the top of my head. Some churches I have to have uh, makeup. Uh, it's annoying. Well, I think I can say that charismatics know how to do worship. And one of the words that came up in the session a lot in the music, I want to do this without, is it okay if I move forward? All right. Um, A lot in the music was king and kingdom, and I want to talk about kingdom this morning. Uh, This is one of the most popular terms uh, being used in the church today. I think it is one of the most misunderstood and misused terms in the church today. Uh, I care about words, not simply because my father was an English teacher, but because I'm a Bible guy, and it irritates me when people are using words from the Bible and they're not using it the way the Bible talks about it. So I, if there's any impact of this morning, uh, I hope that you will be people who go to the Bible and investigate the meaning of the word kingdom. So we're just going to look at this one-turn kingdom. I want to begin uh, by telling you a story I had. At a, I was at a conference like this, and when I was done talking, a pastor got me in one of those kind of hallways that are going nowhere. <laughs> and uh, he used language that you probably wouldn't be too comfortable with, and I won't imitate it. And he said... What in the world does kingdom mean? And I said uh, a few things. And then he said, well, that's not how the people in my church are using it. All the skinny jeans people like the word kingdom. (laughs) And then he said, and what do I know? I wear pleated pants. So I'm the pleated pants guy this morning, and I want to talk to you first about a skinny jeans kingdom theory. Skinny jeans are not in the Bible. They wear tunics. But John the Baptist wore some weird stuff, so we can put up with skinny jeans. Aren't you glad I'm not wearing skinny jeans? I didn't mean that to be funny or anything, but you've had some coffee or something. Um, Wonderful music this morning, uh, and I've told three people already since I've been here, because evidently music is important here, that I know nothing about music. Uh, The greatest band in history for me is Jan and Dean, and then the Beach Boys, and the Beatles. And then I skip forward to the Bee Gees and Celine Dion. And I haven't haven't moved past them. Unless you count Andrea Bocelli. Well, a friend of mine, a pastor named J.R. Briggs, one day said to me, here's an album I want you to listen to, and he sent it to me. And I figured out how to put it into my car so that it would play. And for at least a year... I listened to this album every day, and it was by a guy named Derek Webb. And he had some haunting, politically critical, edgy music, I guess. It was called the song that I was listening to all the time, because I don't know how to make it start where I finish from before, so it always starts in the same place. And when I, get, when I got to school, it ended in the same place every day, unless there was a traffic jam. Then I got to listen to more, sometimes twice. But the song was called A King and His Kingdom. And here are the words. Who's your brother? Who's your sister? You just walked past him. I think you missed her. As we're all migrating to the place where our father lives because we're married into a family of immigrants. I think that's a form of poetry, but I'm not sure how it works. The chorus is, my first allegiance is not to a flag, a country, or a man. My first allegiance is not to democracy or blood. 
It's to a king and a kingdom. There are two great lies that I've heard. The day you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will not surely die. And that Jesus Christ was a white, middle-aged Republican. And if you want to be saved, you have to learn to be like him. Clever. But nothing unifies like a common enemy, and we've got one, sure as hell. But he may be living in your house. He may be raising up your kids. He may be sleeping with your wife. Oh, no, he may not look like you think. Well, every time I listen to Derek Webb's song, as a Bible guy, I ask myself, what did he mean by kingdom? What does this word mean to this guy? And I couldn't quite tell because that's what songs do. You know, they leave you hanging, wondering such things, nor do they, are they intended to uh, answer all these questions. But Derek Webb admitted in a recent interview when asked about an album that he now has called She Must and Shall Go Free, said this, I wrote that song after having spent 10 years prior to that in a band called Cademan's Call and playing in a lot of churches and in church culture, living in the church kind of world. At the end of my 10 years in that band, I found myself with a lot of questions about the church and about the church's role, my role in the church and the church's role in culture. So he asked skinny jeans questions. Do I have to go to church? Is that a part of Christianity? What role does the church play uniquely in culture? So my first record was me trying to answer some of those questions. Well, that is an interesting question for a Bible guy. The connection of kingdom to church. And for Derek Webb, it was very clear, and it is very clear, that you can do kingdom work and kingdom mission and not at all know about your relationship to the church. So this concerns me. And I've come to this conclusion about skinny jeans, kingdom theory of the kingdom. This is what it means. Remember this. Write this on your mirror. Kingdom work today means good deeds done by good Christian people in the public sector for the common good. Good deeds done by good, mostly Christian people in the public sector for the common good. Everything but the church is involved in this understanding of kingdom. In fact, the church is an impediment for some people, and it's a problem. The question that I have often asked my students over the years, and that I asked a New Testament scholar friend of mine, uh, his name is Tom Wright, I said to Tom, did Gandhi, we were having a public debate about this topic last year, did Gandhi do kingdom work? And he said yes, and I said no. And he answered back with this question. What, do you, what about Mandela? And I said, Mandela was a Methodist. And he said, what does that have to do with it? And I didn't know if that was his statement about Mandela or about the Methodists. But I didn't push it. I think skinny jeans people would say Gandhi did kingdom work. Now, in Chicago, we asked the question, did Jane Addams do kingdom work? And if you know anything about social work in the history of America, Jane Addams is a featured person. She created the whole house in Chicago, the hot, uh, the hot beach for uh, progressivism in Chicago. For my students, uh, for years, uh, teaching college students, Obamacare is kingdom work. Did Tutu do kingdom work? Who's doing kingdom work? What is kingdom work? In a skinny jeans kingdom theory, which is where many people in the church are today, just listen to people talk about kingdom. It's something done out there. 
They would never say preaching on Sunday morning is kingdom work. It's something done in the public sector by the common good. We have to ask whether this is what Jesus meant by kingdom and what the New Testament means by kingdom. And so I think we have to press forward and ask not only what the skinny jeans people think, but the pleated pants theory of kingdom. What do they think? They do a lot of thinking. A lot of it's not very practical, but they do a lot of it. So in pleated pants, I'm talking about people like me, professors, who meet uh, in academic sessions and discuss endlessly about Basileia and Malkuta Shemayim, the Greek and Hebrew words connected to New Testament ideas about kingdom. And we've debated for a century or more about whether the kingdom of God is something that is present or is it something that is future. So I was listening to that song about the king and the kingdom and the coming and I was waiting for an answer to my question. It kind of floated between the two and it left me ambiguous. But I have room in my pleated pants for that sort of ambiguity. Is, is the kingdom now or is it not yet? Well, we've come to a conclusion. The kingdom is both. It is both present and yet the future will be the consummation of that kingdom. So we read texts like Mark 1, 14 to 15. After John had been put in prison, Jesus went into the Galilee preaching or proclaiming or gospeling the gospel of God. The time has come, Jesus said, that uh, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, when Jesus said has come near, did he mean it's here or it's close? Well, this language is used for the arrival Uh, getting close to arriving at your destination and just on the edge of arrival. So it seems to be the kingdom is still in the future, but it's really close. Yet we read a verse like Matthew 12, 28, where Jesus said, If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Well, there it's present in the powerful, redemptive, and liberating uh, exorcistic ministries of Jesus. The kingdom of God is both future and present. And in Luke 17, 20 to 21, Jesus says, don't look there and don't look here for the kingdom of God is in your midst. Entos humon in Greek. And it means here in your midst, but it doesn't mean inside your heart. It means it's present. This is why the great early Christian thinker Origen spelled with an O, an I, and an E, not two I's. Origen said Jesus was the auto basileia, the kingdom itself. And that was sung this morning. When Jesus comes, the kingdom is here. Jesus is the presence of the kingdom. Yet, Mark 14 tells us that Jesus at the Last Supper said, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine with you again until I drink it in the kingdom. So the kingdom is both present and future. And people in my world like to discuss this sort of thing endlessly. And when we're done, we're done. We've decided it's both. Let's move on to another topic. And the people in the church say, what does that mean for me? And we say things like this. It means you're living in an eschatological tension. Let's have a Bible study about that sometime. The eschatological tension of Christological existence. And then we got it going. So this this question is a nice question, but it just doesn't take us far enough. In pleated pants, people often don't go far enough into the church. So there's another debate. Is the kingdom about the rule of God or the realm over which he rules? So we fight about this, and we've been fighting about this and about 
125 years ago, a German scholar said it means rule, and we all said it means rule. And no one questioned this again. And the problem with that is every reference in the Old Testament to the word kingdom always refers to a realm. You can't have a kingdom if you don't have... You can't have a kingdom and just have someone ruling. You know, you know that's like the Chicago Cubs. It's like saying they rule baseball. Well, nobody's listening. And my son works for the Cubs, so be careful. But if you have a rule, you have to have something over which you rule. So you can't have a rule or a realm, you have a rule and a realm, and this transforms everything in this discussion because it forces us to ask, where is God ruling in the world today? For skinny jeans kingdom theory, God is ruling out there in the world. For pleated pants people, they don't ever ask ask that question, so they move on to the next debate. And so I want to work with you on this topic today about where God is ruling. And what I'd like to do with the rest of our time, you know, I'm a professor, so we do these sorts of things. I'm going to give to you 12 theses. Luther gave 95, so be careful. Be glad that I'm not Luther. But I want to discuss conclusions that I have come to in the last um, decade or more of studying kingdom in the New Testament. I am convinced that the skinny jeans people have a passion and a heart that is good, but the location of their kingdom work is mistaken. And I am convinced that the pleated pants people just don't ask the most important questions. They ask important questions, but it's got to get down to living reality for it to sing and sting in the church and for the sake of the church. So we're asking the question today about the relationship of the kingdom to the church. And I'm going to give you a very quick summary of where this will head, and it will be this. If you ever use the word kingdom and you couldn't have used the word church instead, you're probably using the word kingdom inaccurately or unbiblically. If you ever use the word kingdom, tweet that. (laughs) Don't tweet the stuff about skinny jeans and pleated pants. That doesn't go well on Twitter world. But if you ever use the word kingdom and you can't substitute the word church, you're probably not using the word kingdom biblically. Now, I'd like to say this. You are not Forget probably. You are not using the word biblically. For some people, this is offensive. For some people, this is a mystery. So I want to propose some theses, uh, none of which I'll be able to support with uh, extensive biblical discussion because we don't have time for that. I would just simply like to propose these ideas and then get you to go back to your Bible and investigate what kingdom means. That would be the best thing that could happen. The first is this. The word kingdom in Judaism at the time of Jesus, and by that I'm incorporating the Old Testament, Josephus, uh, the Jewish sources, had a natural synonym in the word nation. Never in the word redemption or the word salvation. The pleaded people say the kingdom of God is the rule of God in this world, and so it has come to mean God's dynamic, redemptive actions in the world. So that when someone brings liberation into a situation, a neighbor's Neighbors are fighting, and you insert yourself, and you liberate them from their fight. Some people would say that's kingdom work because it's redemptive and good and positive, and because kingdom has become rule, and rule is redemptive, and redemptive means good things are happening that God would like to have happen, and that becomes kingdom. 
But when you say that to a first century Jew, I think they would look at you and say, have you ever read the Bible? Because in the Old Testament, the word kingdom, Malkut, refers to Israel as a nation hundreds of times. The natural parallel is a people. Now don't forget that. The natural parallel to kingdom is a people, not the dynamic rule. If Jesus came in and said, the kingdom of God is drawn near, people in Galilee wouldn't have said, yippee, we can get saved now. That's not what they wanted. They wanted Rome to go pack up their bags and get back where they belong and leave them in the Holy Land. When Jesus said the kingdom of God is drawn near, they're looking for David. They're looking for Jesus to go to Jerusalem and become the king. And that's what happens exactly in John chapter 6 on the Sea of Galilee, on the north side, where they want to make him king because of what he's done, because they get it. They get what he's doing. All right, that's my first thesis. The natural parallel is a people or a nation. The second thesis is this. Kingdom is a complex of ideas, and we are mistaken to reduce it to one idea. The pleated pants people have reduced kingdom to the dynamic redemptive moment. Now, the vineyard was created in George Ladd's seminary class at Fuller Seminary when he was talking about kingdom because he believed that if the kingdom is partly present, then miracles should be occurring. Well, in the vineyard movement, kingdom got very close to being redemptive moments of healing. For skinny jeans people, kingdom means social justice. So when social justice is working, all right? But kingdom in the Bible is a complex, and it always has these five ideas. It always has to have a king. It always has to have a rule by that king. It always has to have a people. It always has a law. And it has a territory or a land. King, rule, people, law, and land. So every time kingdom comes up, those five ideas are at work in every Jew's mind. So when Jesus said the kingdom uh, arrived, the, uh, uh, the kingdom of God is drawn near, they wouldn't have said, oh, God is now ruling the world? They believe that already. There's something happening uh, in Galilee on planet Earth with the people of God that they're going to be ruled by God, and that means they won't be ruled by the Herods, like Antipas, whom Jesus called a fox, not because he was handsome and good-looking. And he certainly wasn't wearing skinny jeans. It was because he was deceitful and devious and clever and rapacious. So they thought, if God is ruling, no Herods and no Romans. God will rule in Jerusalem. So that's the idea that it's a complex. Now, here's something really important. The third thesis is this that the church is also a complex. And this is often neglected. And I'll get to this in just a minute because we start comparing church and kingdom and we don't do well. The church has a king. His name is Christ. That's what the word Christ means. Messiah means king, king of Israel. Jesus is the king. And Christ rules uh, in this world over his people because he has been raised from the dead. Like Aslan in Narnia who was on the stone table and the Pavensi kids were, chilled, were, were sad. And then the stone table cracked and Aslan was roaming the land again. And Aslan's roar was heard throughout the land. That is what we talk about with Jesus as ruling. He's come back from the dead, and he's now ruling at the right hand of God. This is what we confess. 
as church people. And there is a people. The people under King Jesus is called the church in the New Testament. And we don't do very well explaining what the church is. Um, And we need to talk about that. There is a land issue for a Jew. And Jesus seems to talk about the land a couple times, although we tend to brush it off. He said, you are the salt of the land. He didn't say earth. The Greek word there would have been, the Hebrew behind it would have been arets, the land. And you are the light of the world. So this seems to say the disciples have a witness responsibility to the land of Israel, and they also have a a witness responsibility into the world and into the Roman Empire. So Jesus cares about the land, but this land promise gets all confused in the New Testament in a wonderful new way because all of a sudden the church starts to expand into the Roman Empire where they establish churches in homes and these are little deposits of the land of Israel in foreign countries where they are the temple of God and they're like mobile temples wandering around the Roman Empire establishing mobile churches that can move from place to place because they're people. And so the land promise gets extended. I think we could say we are the land of Israel right now in Colorado Springs in this location. And there's a law uh, in the New Testament. That law finds two primary expressions. It's bigger than this. The Sermon on the Mount of Jesus in Matthew 5 through 7 and Paul's teachings of life in the Spirit. This becomes what Paul calls at one time the law of Christ. And Namu Christu in Galatians. So that is what we are supposed to be following as people of God. Well, now all of a sudden, the church sounds a lot like the kingdom. There's a king. There's a rule. There's a people. There's a law. And the church has messed with this, but the land has been expanded to include Gentile characters. Now, two more theoretical points But these are absolutely crucial to the whole thing. Because in the end, I'm going to argue that we need to be more committed to the local church and less committed to the public sector. And it doesn't matter who rules in Washington, D.C. because Jesus rules at the right hand of God. All right? The kingdom is now and not yet. In the present moment, the kingdom has been partly expressed and realized. We call this eschatological. It is both present and future. But there's something that is often uh, not recognized. The church, too, is eschatological. We have a present church, but Ephesians 5 describes the church when it will be perfect. It will be completely pure and spotless and united with its, uh, we're the bridegroom. So there we have an image of the church in the future. So the kingdom is present, and we look around and we say, where? Right? You should ask that. And the church is present, and we know where it is. It's got buildings all over the place. The kingdom is future where it will be a glorious consummation of all that God wants for the world and for society, and then we will see a church that is future. Now, that leads to this point. When we compare the kingdom to the church, most people make logical errors. You cannot compare the present church to the future kingdom and say, therefore, they're two different things. And that's what people do all the time. If, if when I say the church and the kingdom are to be seen together, I have friends who say to me, you need to come to my church. And I ask right then, is your church a present realization of the kingdom today? That it is not completely here, but partly here, and so that it's kind of a messy kingdom? Yeah, well, that's what the church is. So we should compare the present kingdom with the present church. They're the same thing. And that means we can compare the future kingdom with the future church. And Revelation 21 to 22 describes when God will dwell with his people and he describes it as the church, the body of Christ. Not the kingdom so much. It's both. It's kingdom and the church. But it's the body of Christ.
The kingdom then is now and not yet, and the church is now and not yet. To compare the church to the kingdom means we must be fair. And when we're fair with what the Bible teaches, we compare the present realization of the church, which is sometimes glorious, where we see in the fellowship of the saints glimpses of kingdom realities, and then other times we see horrible messes. But that's the kingdom now, too. The kingdom is sometimes we touch on kingdom realities and we think, wow, we're tasting eternity. And then you look around and you see people struggling with all kinds of sin who call themselves kingdom people and we say it's messy. That's where we are today. Kingdom and church are to be brought together. Now, you can understand why I contend that skinny jeans kingdom theory in thinking the kingdom is always outside the church, has made a huge mistake. And when our mission is connected, I'll get to this, to making the world better, I have to ask if we're doing kingdom work at all. All right? Now, we're going to explore this. My next thesis is this. This should be number six, but numbers don't matter. My dad was an English teacher, not a math teacher. All right. We all face what's called the Constantinian temptation. I'll explain. We all are tempted to take our beliefs and get the powers of Washington, D.C. to support our agendas and legislate it into law so that our country is more Christian. That's the Constantinian temptation. Now, some of you are not going to agree with me on all this, but I'm on the side of the angels. (laughs) So you're going to have to listen carefully. Both the moral majority, or the Christian coalition, and modern-day Christian progressives often wearing skinny jeans, have both succumbed to Constantine. They want to use Washington, D.C. They want to use the state's force, even if it's the force of a majority, to legalize the Bible's teaching. We don't need the state. We don't need Washington, D.C., Jesus is roaming Narnia again, alive and well. We don't need the state to prop up our beliefs so that we can think we're winning. Jesus is ruling. What more winning do we need? See what I mean? I call this, at times, the eschatology of politics. Believing that the next candidate will lead us into the kingdom. How do we participate in the public uh, political realm in order to accomplish Christian will? First of all, we do it with ethics. We translate our ethics into socially acceptable terms. The great words, the great word justice or righteousness in the Bible has become social justice in the political sector. But instead of being measured by what justice is in the Bible, it is measured by what justice is according to the U.S. Constitution, and we're talking about rights for people. The Bible talks about responsibilities for people who listen to what God has to say to them, and that's the standard, God's will. Peace becomes global peacemaking rather than the transformative peace of the Bible. Furthermore, we secularize these things. Listen to this one in the Western world. We have a great doctrine in the Bible called love. We've turned this into the Western world into the doctrine of tolerance. Tolerance means whatever it means in Colorado, you know, 
You leave me alone, and I'll leave you alone, and we'll get along well. All right? But that's not what love means in the Bible. Love means a radical commitment to be with someone and to be for someone and to help them as they help us become the people that God wants us to be. It is hard to love people. It is easy and wonderful to to tolerate people. But we've secularized the Christian doctrine of love into the doctrine of tolerance. The cross of Christ and his sacrifice and our participation in that cross has become social service so that we service other people for what they want in order to make them happy. The resurrection of Christ has become a hopeful attitude in society. Hardly. Resurrection looks death in the face and says, you lose because Jesus has been there and conquered death. Cross and resurrection belong together in a very uniquely Christian package. We cannot secularize these doctrines without ruining our message and losing our witness. And then we politicize it all, and we start getting involved in the political process. And there are good people who like to do this. But I want to bring together a triumvirate of witnesses that I think you will all admit, if you know American evangelicalism, are significant voices. And they are Carl Henry, the dean of American evangelicalism and who created Christianity Today in the middle of the 20th century. Dallas Willard, who led the church in spiritual formation and awareness of what it means to be Christ-like. And James Davison Hunter, who just wrote a book called To Change the World, an evangelical professor of sociology at the University of Virginia. All three of them have a similar conclusion. And I want you to listen to this whether you agree with it or not. They said this, 30 years of activism by Christian evangelicals has accomplished nothing except that evangelicals are no longer liked. We have a politics. It's called the church. We are a faithful witness if we follow Jesus. And Jesus calls us to a kingdom reality that transcends political powers. When the media thinks evangelical means Republican, we're not doing it right. When the media thinks mainline means Democrats, we're not doing it right. When the media says Christians are people who follow Jesus, we're doing it well. That's our challenge with kingdom realities. I could start preaching if I had to. My next thesis, I told you these are a little bit random. These are coming from a manuscript that I've written on. It's called The Kingdom Conspiracy, and I'm just drawing out some points. I'm a professor. We make points. There is a historical context for how the word kingdom is being used today, and I would say misused today, and it's this. At the beginning of the 20th century, a very important German Baptist pastor in New York City named Walter Rauschenbusch created what we now call the social gospel. The fundamental idea was the gospel is bigger than personal salvation. I bet you've heard this a million times in the last 20 years. And they're right. But Rauschenbusch decided that he was going to press outside the walls of the church, cooperate with the state, and create justice in laws. And that became the fundamental task of the church, was to make America better social gospel, and to make life better for the underprivileged and those who have experienced injustice. In the middle of the 20th century, starting in Latin America, liberation theology took the social gospel and ramped it up a notch and de-centered the church so that the church was seen as nothing other than an arm of the liberation process so that the church was called to support the state in bringing liberation. In my contention... This is exactly what's happened 
all across the spectrum in the church today. In mainline churches and evangelical churches, the church is being diminished as the significant place where God is working today, where the kingdom of God work is doing, and people have become involved in the political sector in order to bring about the will of God and the kingdom of God, and this denies what the Bible says. I'm a Bible guy, so I care about this. I hope you do too. But that context is very important. Now I'm going to make some controversial ones. The other ones were easy. All right, this is really important. It's short. Christ came to build the church, not to make the world a better place. He did not come for the common good. The common good is enlightenment thinking, not biblical thinking. Jesus came, Matthew chapter 16. Listen to these words of Jesus when he's talking to Peter. He provokes Peter. But what about you, Peter? Who do you think I am? Simon Peter said, I think you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. These words just roll off his lips. He's clueless as to what they mean, but he's right. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father who is in the heavens. And I tell you that you are Peter. And Now, the the word for Peter is kepha in Aramaic, and the word for rock in Aramaic is kepha. So you could say, you are rocky. (laughs) And on this rock, I will build my church. See what Jesus said? I'm going to build the church. And the gates of Hades, this was in the song today, will not overcome it. Now listen to this. I will give to you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom. Church and kingdom have been brought together by Jesus in the uh, one of two texts where he ever talks about the church. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he told him not to tell anybody that he was the Messiah. This is the, we call this the messianic secret. Notice that what Jesus is saying is I have come to build the church and the church and the kingdom are connected. Whoever is in the church is in the kingdom. Whoever is in the kingdom is in the church. And this is the focus of my entire mission. Jesus came to build the church, not to make the world a better place. This is really important. Because the local church should become the focus of all Christian behavior and all Christian ministry. All right, next thesis. This is a really big one too. We can't understand the relationship of kingdom and church until we have a proper understanding of world. World. The New Testament use of the word world is almost entirely negative. A very important biblical theologian named John Howard Yoder once said, the world in the New Testament means structured unbelief or systematized unbelief. It is people who do not acknowledge in God running the world. We cannot make the world a better place because the world is the world. The church's mission, listen to this, is to show the world that it is the world. To show the world its worldliness. And the world's responsibility then becomes to show the church its churchliness and its differentness from the world. Our call is to call the world what it is. But instead of calling it the world, we now call it culture. It's such a pleasant term. And we now have a sophisticated category for the world, and we call it culture. You'll understand this. If you put Peyton Manning's uniform on Jay Cutler... You still have Jay Cutler. (laughs) 
All right? Is that right? We've got Jay Cutler. You've got Peyton Manning. Just be happy you're not playing the Bears. You might score 60 points. What I'm saying is you can dress up world with the word culture, but you still have world. World is unredeemed reality. Our responsibility is not to make the world a better place. It's to call people out of the world into the church, out of the empire of Caesar into the empire of Jesus. All right? So we have to ask this question about the meaning of the word world. And I understand the significance of this, and that's why I have to bring this next thesis to you. Because now I've just separated us from the world and suggested that the word culture might be the way we're avoiding the worldliness of the world. Okay, I can live with that. But that doesn't mean, and this is my next thesis, that doesn't mean the church is disengaged from the world or society or culture, but it redefines engagement. The church is an alternative community in the world. It witnesses to what life is like under King Jesus. And we create then, in a sense, in our church, a brand new society, a kingdom society, where justice and peace and love and wisdom can be found where we care for the poor in our own midst in such a way that the world looks and says, I'd like to be a part of that. Where we exhibit what the Bible wants us to do. So instead of trying to get D.C. to do our will, we witness of our will to D.C. by the way we live. All the difference in the world. All the difference in the world. So, here's, what, uh, here's my example. People often call public actions, kingdom work, and things done for church people, church work. I want to bring all kingdom work back to the church where it belongs. Now, what do we call what we do out here? All right? very simple. It's called good work. The New Testament has one text that really addresses this issue. It's 1 Peter. Peter is a Christian forming churches in the Roman Empire, and they're asking about their relationship to Rome. And Peter explicitly says that we are called uh, to be 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. I urge you, friends, as foreigners and exiles, and this is probably their social status more than their spiritual condition. I urge you as foreigners and and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that war against your soul. Live such good lives, good works, among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they don't like you, They will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Peter routinely uses this Greek word, agathopoieo, to do good works, which is a technical term in the Greek world for public benevolence, like building bridges and ports and preparing and providing food for the poor and passing out food to the poor. Peter wants Christians to do that, but he would never call that kingdom work. That's good work. That's good deeds. Christians, because they follow the one who loves all and who created us in the image of God, become people who are loving toward every neighbor they meet. So there's no disengagement But there's now a re-engagement. I engage my worldly neighbors 
as someone who follows Jesus. And it's my responsibility to represent Jesus in every encounter I have with them. I don't do that to make the world, my community, or my state, and my state needs it, our governors serve uh, the people in office and then they serve time in prison. (laughs) We have three of them in prison right now. We're winning. We're way ahead of everybody in the nation on this. So I want Illinois to be better. But my way of making it better is to build better churches that witness to the truth of the gospel and draw people to the gospel and to King Jesus. And they then change society over time because we have become a faithful witness. It's not that we aren't engaging people in the world. It's not that we're not being good to people in the world. It's not that we're not doing good works. It's not necessarily that we don't vote. It's none of that stuff. We are engaged as citizens, but we are citizens of Jesus engaged in the world. But there's an ordering to this that is very interesting. The Apostle Paul said this, do good to all people, especially to the household of faith. So we are biased and prejudiced in our good works that we favor our, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So first, we take care of the poor in our own church. First, we take care of the unemployed in our own church. First, we take care of the abused in our own church. First, we take care of the wounded and the needy and those who need healing in our own church. And our loving relationships to these spill over into our communities, into our neighborhoods. As we learn the way of love in our community, we spill that over into our society in order to draw people into the alternative kingdom society that we're a part of in this world. My 11th thesis, I have three minutes left. Kingdom mission is local church mission. Local church mission is kingdom mission. Let me say it in Latin. Because you all learned Latin in grade school. Oh, that was my dad's group. Extra ecclesium nullum regnum. Outside the church, there is no kingdom. All right? That's radical for some people. But we have lost the significance of the church in the politics of this world. We've become, we've gotten to where we believe in the government. So evangelism and worship and catechesis and fellowship and edification and discipleship and gifts of the Spirit, this is kingdom work. And we are furthering that. My last thesis is this. The only place... Kingdom work is and can be done in the world today is through the local church when disciples who are kingdom citizens do what they are called to do. Thank you.